Hi, I'm Lauren. Hi, I'm Kelly, and welcome to The Millennial Minimalists. We're two Canadian millennials and minimalists on a mission to live more with less. And together, our goal is to inspire you to design a simpler, more intentional life. Hi, everyone. This is Kelly, and today I'm sharing a conversation between Lauren and best-selling author Brian Kozlowski, who wrote the book The Jane Austen Diet which unlocks English novelist Jane Austen's simple and time-tested health strategies from over two centuries ago. Brian became inspired to write The Jane Austen Diet while working to improve his own health one summer. While working through tons of wellness books and scientific research and simultaneously reading Jane Austen's novels, he couldn't help but recognize the healthy hints within her writings. And in an effort to work through the hundreds of diet fads and exercise routines nowadays, Brian found the greatest success in applying Austin's simple lifestyle habits and became motivated to share them with others. And in this discussion, Brian takes us back in time to show us that diet and exercise doesn't have to be complicated. And together, Brian and Lauren share Austin's holistic strategies for improved health through food, exercise, and mental management. Be inspired by the simple diet and exercise habits of the past. So what initially inspired you to write the book and how did you parallel these great works of literature to modern day health advice? It's interesting. It, it was kind of a big accident in the beginning where for me, like a lot of other people, I just kind of saw Jane as a purely romantic writer. So I always kind of had that in my mind. She wasn't anything other than that. But kind of nearing my 30th birthday, I kind of had this dreadful self-awareness that my body was just not behaving in the same way as it used to in my 20s. I couldn't eat the same or, or move the same like I used to. And I know this is just obviously a consequence of getting a little older, but I thought like, okay, this is like way too quick for just to be having it in my 30s. So I kind of just started a little personal research project looking at the latest health and wellness books and the latest kind of scientific research, what, you know, trying to glean answers there. At the same time, just for fun, I was going back and rereading through Jane Austen's novels as I'm just a little bit of a, of a, of a big uh, classic literature geek that way. So, but in my mind, it was just for fun. But what I noticed kind of almost instantly is that I would read some kind of really interesting tidbit in, in like a scientific paper or in, uh, or in one of the latest health books. And then I would come across almost the identical piece of wisdom in Jane Austen's writings. And this happened so frequently. I, I knew it wasn't a fluke. I knew, I knew something was going on. And, and, and it happened in reverse. I would read Jane Austen and then find the same thing happen, you know, same thing being researched or discovered by science. So Austen wasn't just a purely uh, writer of romances. She was actually incredibly interested in health. I mean, just the word health itself pops up more than a hundred times in her novels. So it's this was a side of Austin that I thought deserved to be investigated, deserved to be brought out. And the joy, I think, of the project is seeing how relevant, like you said, her insights are for us now in the 21st century when we have forgotten so much of this past historic wisdom that, that came so naturally to Austin. Yeah, I couldn't believe the wisdom that was coming out in terms of health that the book wasn't necessarily about. Right. And to understand why that is, is because you're going to have to look at the time period Austin was writing in. And it has such huge similarities with our own. Um, it was a gargantuan age of excess. And I know we don't often think of the Regency period like that. I, I was guilty of kind of 
imagining it to be very quaint and very simplistic. But, you know, this was the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Things were changing and modernizing very quickly. But Austin kind of lived in this very liminal in-between period when she could remember a much more simpler pre-industrial, more agricultural society that did balance their lifestyle choices a lot better. And that was getting quickly, quickly pushed out in in this more like drive towards industry, drive towards excess. And I, I think she was actually trying to get readers back into a more holistic way of looking at health because during this period, Austin was really worried that health was being sort of narrowed down into a narrow confine of of just parameters of weight and, and looking at health through just your size and 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 your you know the number on a scale. And that that bothered her. We know it bothered her because she gives really the what you might call like the alternative or the older way of of looking at health, a more of a classical model of looking at health. And that is health isn't anything that can manifest in one thing in your life. It isn't anything like, so at the time, if we can just go back for a second, at the time, there was this big fad of of weighing yourself. And they didn't, of course, have bathroom scales, but you would go to a warehouse and you would hang, hop on a hanging scale and you would get your weight. And people were really fascinated by this. And this got quickly transformed and looking, looking at health purely through that number. And it created kind of like it does today, very compulsive behaviors. And so this worried Austin. So what you see in her novels instead is that she she looks at health in a hugely holistic way. And so what she's trying to do is really get us back to the root of health itself. So health, what a lot of people have forgotten, that word comes from an Anglo-Saxon word meaning whole. So people who are healthy are not necessarily just a certain size or aren't on a certain diet or or on a certain exercise routine. They are they are whole people in, in a wide variety of ways. So it's much more, it's much more holistic than that for, for her. It's how is your mind? Like, what is the state of your mind? What is the state of your anxiety level? Are you spending too much time alone? Are you spending, are you, you know, are you engaged with society? All of that is is crucial for determining whether somebody is in health or or out of it, as Austin would say. Yeah. And it's almost like the forgotten health advice nowadays in modern diet books. I feel like it's just like, eat this, don't eat that, do this workout. Even though I do think we are starting to transition more into the mental component. But um, right, yeah. another thing that's great about the book, like you were just saying, there's such diversity in advice too. So it encompassed everything from how to think, move, eat, even unconventional advice, like getting out more in nature and how important that is. What were Jane's main pillars of health and how did she fit them into her everyday life? I think the what was so refreshing to me is that we often think, and even we're really guilty of this today, and they were definitely an Austin's period of seeing health as something that gets manifested from the inside out. So it's like, if you're not healthy, then there's something wrong with your body or there's some weakness somewhere. Austin did not believe that at all. For her, it was much more an outside in kind of thing. And so she's coming from the philosophy that um, for the vast majority of people, you are already have the seeds of health already in you. You already have a strong body. What you need to do is organize your environment so that you kind of like a plant can just flourish. You know, if you're a gardener, you don't spend a lot of time neurotically worrying like, oh my gosh, is this plant healthy or not? No, you just 
you give it the right environment and then you trust that nature is going to do its work and that plant will flourish and thrive in the right environment. And Hawson saw humans in the same way. And so, and that's why you, you have her healthiest characters never, never focus on their bodies too much. If they are unhealthy, they're always going to look outside of their bodies and something is wrong in their environment. So, and then on the opposite of that, you'll have her bad and almost comical characters and her really unhealthy characters. They're the ones that actually kind of in a very modern way, focus on their bodies too much. Um, Look at their bodies, kind of focus on the weakness of their bodies. And in doing so, they're kind of self-perpetuating their own unhealthiness and they aren't looking actually at the simplistic lifestyle environmental things that could be changed very easily and their bodies would you know respond and and get to that healthy state but they refuse to do that they they kind of flip the coin and they look at it from the other side from the inside out and Austin is just very careful to warn us not to do that that you are healthy you're there's nothing wrong with your body if there's something wrong going wrong that you feel like you're slumping in health it is the the environment that needs to change not you i like that it makes you feel like you have more control over your health right right yeah definitely for every austin heron i mean you it's it's really about control and and she knew in a really progressive way how much when you feel in control how much that eliminates stress and eliminates anxiety in your life just it just feeling like you can handle it that my body can handle this and you know the small little things in my environment that I can change those are minor my body's already strong to begin with I mean there really is it's something that for you know not everyone unfortunately but for the vast majority of us we are we are blessed with healthy bodies and it's it's our environments that need tweaking another part was the exercise components I feel like nowadays formal exercise is so popular, like doing high intensity interval training or CrossFit mm-hmm. or Pilates. It wasn't like that a couple hundred years ago. And they really right. fit exercise naturally into their life. So can you just yeah. talk a little bit about how she did that and how people can apply that to their life? Yeah, it, it is really funny because again, so the Regency period really was the first time period where you do see exercise becoming more formalized and and even more medicalized, whereas doctors were of that period were kind of concerned. There was a rising leisure class. A lot of people had nothing better to do than sit on their butts all day long. And so, you know, doctors came along and said, okay, well, from this period and this period every day, you should exercise. And then inventors came along and created some really wacky exercise products. They were, I mean, exercise gadgets. They were kind of the first in the market of that time. Um, there was one called the chamber horse. It was kind of like an exercise chair with a, with a spring attached. And you would just hobble up and down on that for a little while and, and you know, take off your, your obligation for exercise for that day. Austin, you get the complete opposite of that, as, as you say, in Austin's novels. What you find is she really wants to get people back to looking at exercise as something that you incorporate naturally into your daily life, not something that you need to set apart a couple hours every week to actually do. Movement for her is key, not necessarily exercise. And, And honestly, light pleasurable movement. You're, you're not talking about anything vigorous here. She is the kind of the earliest advocate in literature we have of what we would now call intuitive exercise. Intuitive exercise is just the kind of the common sense belief that, okay, I'm going to exercise in a way that feels good for my body that doesn't 
push it too much any in any pain in any way. I'm going to rest when I need to rest. I'm going to just treat this as a pleasurable thing. And research has done some fascinating studies into this and that when you keep exercise pleasurable, when you keep it light, you are much more likely to keep it up through every day, every week, every month, you know, throughout your entire life. And you know, you know, you look at the abysmal rate of of gym memberships. I think it's about 67% of, of gym memberships elapse after the first year, or they're just, you know, abandoned after the first year. It's it's a hard rate because if we're honest with ourselves, we most of us don't like pushing our bodies like that. It's it makes us uncomfortable, it's it's painful and biologically our bodies are really good at avoiding pain wherever possible so that's why you know all of our good intentions and our new year's resolutions of let's i want to exercise more i want to get on a stringent exercise routine aren't really going to last what does last if you kind of go back to austin's philosophy to keep things pleasurable keep things light and that's why you find walking is such a big deal in austin's novels i mean i kind of joke in the book that everything happens on a walk because these people are just walking all the time i you can calculate it there's kind of a typical regency person and and someone of austin's class and in austin's characters they would walk about seven miles a day now that's like astronomically worlds away from what we walk how much we walk today because it's like because it's pleasurable because it's just incorporated into your daily life and if you're kind of wary about this, and I think that's the problem, many most people think it has to make me sweat to make it count. You know, I have no pain, no gain kind of thing. And that's not true. Scientists have known for a really long time, I mean, a good three decades now that there was, you know, this big Surgeon General's report from the U.S. Surgeon General in 1996 that, that pretty much stated, you do not need to exercise for an hour a day in a, in a vigorous way. You can divide that up in very light movements throughout the day. So, you know, and then you look at the longest lived people groups around the world, like blue zones. Blue zones are like the the hotspots of longevity around the world. What are those people doing to obtain that kind of longevity? They're not forcing their bodies into strenuous exercise routines. You know, they're walking, they're just doing natural movements and and they're avoiding all the sprains that come with, you know, pushing our bodies out of their comfort zone. So you know, if you kind of want a refreshing way of looking at exercise, read a Jane Austen novel, you'll see kind of where she's coming from, why it's so pleasurable and, and why you can sustain it over a long period of time. Yeah, I feel like the workouts these days too are so hard on your joints and your knees. And I do a ballet workout and the girl I work with always makes fun of me. She's like, that's what people do in nursing homes. <laughs> I love it. No, like, because it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. And I've done it for like six years, even if I'm exhausted or I've eaten a bunch of garbage that day and I don't feel like exercising, I'll still do that workout because I enjoy it so much. And I'll just, right. or I'll just like go for a walk or go skating or do something fun. But if I ever try to do hip workouts or formalized, more formalized workouts, I do not do them much past a week or two. And mm. you're right, like you're just, you're sore and it, it is really hard to push your body like that constantly. It is, it is. And it, it just, I mean, and that's why you have, you know, dancing is such like that is the number one cardio <laughs> exercise in Austin's universe because it is fun and it doesn't feel like exercise. I mean, 
Austin is really, really careful to use only pleasurable terms when it comes to whenever her characters exercise. I mean, there's words like comfortable and snug, like let's go on a little snug walk. You know, we think that's kind of like namby-pamby today, but these people were incredibly fit, not only when they're just walking, but they're, you know, another thing we haven't, we haven't talked about, but their maintenance of good posture throughout the day. If you want just an easy exercise to, you know, and, it, and, and you don't have to actually pretty much move a, a muscle, just try to maintain good posture. I mean, that is exercise enough. And it's, it's often described as exercise in Austin's novels, just going for a carriage ride and trying to maintain good posture. Like that was, that was enough of exercise for them. So yeah, it's, that's something I'm continually trying to work on is good posture. But the days I do, it's like, yeah, you feel, I mean, like you just feel in your core. And I mean, these people were incredibly strong, especially the women were really fit, really strong. Um, you just made me want to sit up straight. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm in this chair right now. I'm slumpy. This is like I'm a comfortable chair to be sitting in. Yeah. No, it's so true. I, and walking is actually such great exercise. People don't realize, and if you don't do enough of it, and you get out there and start walking, it it can be hard to keep up for like an hour. It's actually, yeah. The American Heart Association recently came out with this finding that walking is as healthy as running. It just takes a little longer. It's it's as healthy for your heart. It's just really hard getting people to, in this day and age, to kind of understand that light exercises do matter. And they, they matter a lot, especially frequent movement throughout the day. It, it matters a much more than just sitting down throughout the day and exercising for one hour. It's much better. Yeah. And it's so nice just going for a walk and listening to music or putting on a podcast. Like it's not something you would ever have to force yourself to do. Mm-mm. Right. Absolutely. You can go run errands or. So I've read a few books on the Parisian lifestyles or people who have lived in France, especially if they're originally from North America. And they talk a lot about their kitchen design. So I found this interesting. This came up in your book again. You know, nowadays our kitchens are literally part of our living room. Like you're, you're always in the kitchen. People hang out in the kitchen. It's like, one big open concept where people entertain and watch tv but it's not how it was back in that era or even still in some parts of europe the kitchen was very Mm. small and it was separated from where people were most of the days so Mm. can can you just talk a little bit about how kitchens have not really modernized in our favor and in our favor yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and i mean so this is one of the areas where the Regency period and Regency society actually got right. Um, so much of it, they actually got wrong and they needed Jane Austen to kind of show them the better way. But for, yeah, so it was actually, they understood that. So for people who are kind of faced with an abundant supply of food all the time, kind of like we are, they felt it wasn't smart to kind of be constantly surrounded by either the sights or the smells or the sounds of cooking that that would be kind of hard to resist those temptations. So they would position and build their kitchens as far away from their living quarters as physically possible. I mean, there was this one estate in Northern England where um, the kitchen is a, a half of a football field away. It's, it's massively, you know, it's, it's, it's massively on the other side of the house. And, you know, some of this, most of this, to be honest, was just smugness and snobbery and social snobbery i mean you know the farther away possible was, was better and that's why you had all these footmen to carry all you know what what you wanted to eat but when you look at it closer it really does is an excellent way to to circumvent 
the problem of of mindless eating and really halting that and at the during that period snacking wasn't a thing they don't didn't even have a word for snacking and you see that in austin's novels all the time i mean the only time these people are eating is in designated meal times the three meals it's they had slightly different times when they ate than when we do today but it's the dining room is where you eat. You do not eat outside of it. There is this one archaic term that Jane Austen uses sometimes if she wants to describe a little bit of a, a snack that her characters are eating in between a meal, she'll call it nuncheon. But that is that word only comes up twice in all of her six novels. So it's not anything that they're doing all the time. Um, grazing just simply didn't exist. It was, it was too hard. It's definitely just more of a, a modern thing. So obviously, you know, what does that mean for us today? It's not like we can distance our kitchens, uh, you know, and it, it, they are, like you said, plunked inside our living room. But researchers have, have done really interesting studies into this and, and showing that even small obstacles are really handy against eliminating mindless eating. So as many small obstacles as, as, you, can, as you can dream up between you and food, uh, put those in place. So just for an example, out of the University of Illinois, scientists once did uh, recently a study where they sat a group of people at desks, uh, half of the people, they put at desks where a, a bowl of chocolate candy was kind of within arm's reach. So they just have to reach for it. The other half, the same bowl of chocolate candy was kind of placed a couple of feet away. They kind of assumed that the same rate of candy eating would, would be occurring in every group, but it wasn't. The people who actually had to like walk a few steps pretty much did not snack at all. It was the people who, you know, just simply had to reach their arms. So the scientists were astonished at this. And it just shows you that, you know, when it comes to procuring food, humans are incredibly lazy. We don't like to work too much for food. The problem is, is that we just made it too easy. Most of our kitchens are full of convenience foods where we just have to pop open a top. So to kind of honor, I think, the heart of this of this Regency rule, you just eliminate as many convenience foods as possible. They do make eating a little too convenient. And also, you know, try to create those obstacles in your life. Like, you know, I mentioned in the book, don't stock ice cream in your house. Like, if you want ice cream, don't deny yourself. Like, Jane was never interested in, in denying any of her character's food, but make it more, make it harder to procure. Like, go out and have to get ice cream. So, you know, try to think like that, try to think in, in, in terms of those Regency terms that make it a little harder for, for you to get access to food as it was in Jane's time. You know, if Jane wanted ice cream, she would have to first go find a cow and, and, and milk it. I mean, it was, it was, that was kind of the world that she was in. It's so mindless eating wasn't as much of a problem for her as it, as it is for us. Yeah, it's crazy how much that little barrier works, though. Like, I, I did make that rule for myself. I'm like, if you want a treat, like, I live downtown Toronto, so everything's kind of convenient. Mm. I'm like, you have to go out and get it. And there were times where I'm like, I can't be bothered to do it. But right. if it was in my freezer or my cupboard, I would definitely get it. So I, most of the problem, I think, these days is just that everything is so in our face all the time at the office, with family, friends, in our mm. kitchen. It's just constantly available. So mm. putting those little minor barriers between makes a huge difference. Yeah. So in terms of just everyday health advice, this is another thing about the modern world is that it, mm. it changes all the time. It's like eat carbs, don't eat carbs, eat meat, don't eat meat. 
And before this health conscious obsessed culture, there was this sense of balance. You talk about this so much with how Austin drank and how she had desserts and they would have wine, but the wine glasses were very small. They could only hold a couple of ounces. Whereas right. now some wine glass, like well, you can go to a restaurant, order a nine ounce glass of wine. Yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was one of, I think one of the more fascinating tidbits to, to learn whenever, cause you'll see like people, Oh, like, Ooh, I'll have a second glass of wine. And in, in one of Jane Austen's novels, you have to remember it's, it's, it's less than a quarter of a cup of wine they're drinking at that point. If you kind of, if you get a spare moment, pull up what a Regency wine glass would look like. It's like a thimble. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's really, it's really tiny. Like what you would put a little bit of port wine in. Yes, kind of, yes. Yeah. Or or almost like a what we would almost consider a liqueur glass today. And I, you know, food is important to Austin, of course. And I I like you said, I, you know, I talk about how she deals with carbs and and sugar and all of that. But I think even more important even more importantly than that is movement and movement for Jane Austen really hides a multitude of dietary sins. You can get away with eating a lot in Austen's universe if as long as you are moving. And researchers have recently kind of come to the same discovery. It's, I don't know if you've ever heard of the acronym called NEAT, N-E-A-T. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So NEAT is really important. And this is kind of you can understand Austin's prescriptions of movement through NEAT. So NEAT is an acronym that stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It just is, is a fancy way for saying all the things you do that don't kind of, that you don't think of exercise. It's like washing dishes, taking out the garbage, standing, just fidgeting. All these things actually really add up. And there was this really fascinating study out of uh, Mayo Clinic, actually, and they gave a large group of people, um, they told them to eat, okay, eat a thousand more calories every day than you normally would. And that's kind of like the equivalent of eating like a, a Big Mac meal every day, an extra Big Mac meal every day. It's a lot. Any common sense would tell you everyone in that group is going to gain weight. But what they found is that the people who engaged in more neat activities, who kind of ate but didn't sit around, who pottered about a little bit more, were immune from gaining weight. They did not put on any extra pounds. Whereas the people who, the other half of people who kind of ate, ate those extra calories, but had a more sedentary lifestyle, sat around a little bit more, they did put on the pounds. And this is why you find reminder after reminder in Austin's novels that after dinner, you know, what do they do? They normally go for a walk. They're not sitting around, even, you know, if they're inside and it's raining outside, that classic Austin phrase is, oh, let's take a turn around the room. You know, there's there, her healthiest herons are, are very rarely sitting down. And we can kind of understand that through this, the wonders of, of meat. And it's not anything that's really complicated. I know for me in my life, how this transformed me was I, as a writer, I sit down or I used to sit down a ton. And then after investigating Austin's health prescriptions. I did the best decision, one of the best decisions, and I purchased a stand-up desk. And so now I just, you know, that's how I work. And I stand up for most of the time and I, I'm, you know, pacing throughout my room for most of the day. And that is, that did it. And, you know, I don't have that problem anymore of kind of just maintaining my baseline weight. That, it just is like a natural a natural regulator. And it's not like I'm really putting in that much effort. I'm just, I'm just standing as opposed to sitting for most of the day. Yeah. It's these simple things. I, even after I read your book, 
when I would get up to go to the washroom at the office, I would walk around the office a couple of times mm. and then go back to my desk. So it's these simple little things, but I, it's so important to your health to just keep your blood flowing. Like it, I would even get cold and tired if I wasn't moving enough. So yeah. Yeah. And, it, and during that time, I mean, it's, doctors were, were starting to recognize that they, they called it the machina carnis. I think it was the, like the, almost like the meat machine. Your body is a, a, a machine that it works best if it's constantly moving. I'm mean, not constantly frequent movements. I mean, obviously we're not have to be neurotic about this. I think, I think the kind of the rule you want to aim for for every 20 minutes you're sitting down, walk for two minutes. That keeps your, you know, it even affects things like cholesterol and blood sugar there's some kind of strange miracle that takes over when your blood like you said your blood starts pumping your body only really knows how to keep itself healthy while it's moving it it really does a terrible job of that sitting down things tend to shut down all those really vital processes tend to shut down when you're sitting yeah and another thing she mentioned i just want to say this before we go into the next question i've kind mm. of found it a little bit funny but i think of it and it helps me is that kind of the upper class wouldn't like fill up on carbohydrates. Like if they did have bread, they would have really good quality bread and they would have it in Mm. smaller quantities. And it was almost looked down upon to like rip off a huge chunk of bread. (laughs) And it was, it was like, you would have just, yeah, I think of that sometimes when I'm eating like a big loaf of bread or yeah. how she even said that if it wasn't good quality bread, like if, if you have a really good quality sourdough, which doesn't have a lot of gluten in it, they, her mother had gotten sick from not eating a, a better quality bread. So it touches on where a lot of these gluten t- sensitivities are coming from. And if you eat higher quality food and in smaller portions, you're a lot better off than having to do these extreme lifestyles. Right, right. And you know, another thing is that what what she was really concerned about too is that during this period, because there was such a rise in in wealth and in the leisure classes, people were getting very detached about where their food comes from and where what good food was and what natural food was. We have obviously the same problem today. I mean, you know, what happens when you start forgetting where your food comes from? You kind of you kind of just naturally start to overeat because you don't kind of have a huge respect for it anymore. You know, like that French fry, you don't really think about the farmer who grew the potato or the land that it was in or how that, you know, so all those things kind of cast and cultures that tend to have an abundant cheap food supply as, as we do in the rest, as we do in the West, the natural consequence is just to overeat. So, I mean, Austin brings us back to so many really old-fashioned agricultural references. People eat tons of strawberries in that book, and but they know, you know, the field that their strawberries come from. They pick them themselves. They know where their apples are coming from. They know where, you know, and they know the laborers that picked it. And so, you know, this that's it's hugely important. You know, I'm sure you've anytime you've probably made something homemade, you don't just like dig into it. It's you, you savor it a little more, you respect it a little more, you know, you, you're less likely to overeat that thing. So that's, I think that's important too, on top of everything else you've been talking about to, to remember. I mean, try to, try to jumpstart that again in your life, you know, whether it's going to a farmer's market or, or baking something from scratch or baking bread from scratch or sourdough or whatever, kind of recalibrate 
the cost of food in your mind and and you'll naturally start kind of minimizing how much you put on your plate or in your mouth or whatever and it's difficult i mean it's incredibly difficult in our society to do that and but it was coming more and more difficult for jane society too and that's why i think she wants to bring people back to that older older method yeah i feel like if i make something homemade i like rush it <laughs> i'm mm-hmm. like this be so much time and so much effort <laughs> Right. And you have tinier portions. Yeah, it's it's true. It just, I don't know. It's just, a, it's our brain works that way. Yeah. So another thing I learned from your book, I was the worst about thinking how the sun was so damaging. And I always, my friends made fun of me for wearing like a hundred SPF, a huge hat, like sitting in the shade. Like I would never be sunbathing but Jane Austen had this way of getting her vitamin D and enough sunlight to keep her healthy without the damaging effects so can you tell us about how she did that yeah well I mean absolutely you and me both I'm (gasps) biggest heliophobe on the planet and and still am and it's funny it's like it's the one area in my book and I know I write about it but I still struggle with it and that's also, you know, I do live in South Florida, so I'm much closer to the equator. I have to, I have to be careful about the sun. But yeah, I'm the same way. My sister, who's this like bronze beauty, will like constantly, constantly make fun of me. I'm, I layer myself up when I go outside. But yeah, it's so when you, when you read through Austin's novels, you cannot be a solar phobe. You, you, you have to, you have to understand that she respected the sun she kind of her character's glory in sunshine but it's not necessarily what you think like you said it's not it's definitely not any kind of sunbathing I think it's more of understanding the biological benefits of sunshine and and really we all know about vitamin d but it, it transcends that really so the first thing I recognize and that I still do today and any kind of heliophobe can do it it's it's not going to make you burn it all. But so the first thing I, I recognized was this unique pattern that when Austin characters would wake up in the morning, it's not like they eat breakfast right away. They actually try to go outside, go on a little stroll. It's really not about exercise at this point. It's just, there's something going on with them getting outside. And so I started doing this and saw really incredible improvements and just my emotional, physical well-being, and especially how I was sleeping at night, interestingly enough. And so, you know, now, of course, I know what's going on and that it's that hugely important thing for all humans to get a little bit of natural light when we wake up. The light outside, we have to know, is about 10 times brighter than any kind of artificial light you can, you can light up your house with. And your body really needs that in the morning to deactivate melatonin and melatonin as as we all probably know by now is is the sleep hormone but it's it helps us fall asleep at night but it also can keep really groggy in the morning so the miracle i guess is that when you get outside and 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 sunlight hits your skin sunlight hits your eyeballs that pretty much instantly turns melatonin production off so the beauty of that is that not only does that give you more energy to start your day, it's really jumpstarts you better than any energy drink, but it, it recalibrates your internal clock, which will help you sleep much better at night. I mean, before I started doing this and started incorporating this into my daily routine, I really terribly suffered with insomnia and that solved it very quickly. Um, we, we do need that 
recalibration every day to know, okay, the sun's up. I mean, we are diurnal creatures by, by nature. So we need those solar reminders and it's, it's easy not to get those. I know like before, before I researched this project, I mean, I would go from out of bed. I work, I work from home. So I go from out of bed to my office and, you know, pretty dim office and, you know, no wonder, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like a duh thing. Why didn't I realize this? But I need Austin to kind of remind me of this, but yeah, she, you know, to say all that, she's also, she is also careful and and cautious about the sun. So even in pastoral England, you know, she doesn't have her characters got in the midday sun when, you know, when the sun is strongest, you only see them walking or getting out in nature in the morning or in the late afternoon after dinner. That's kind of the two Austin approved times for getting outside. And, you know, today we know that those are the, those are the times when the sun's UV rays are the least damaging. They're really not going to damage your skin at that point. And I think that's probably what we're all afraid of. So if you if you can do that twice a day, your your internal clock will be <laughs> do wonders, you know, for for recalibrating it. Yeah, it's I feel like people lack energy and they're like, oh, I need all these supplements. And it's like you can just go outside in the morning just for a little sunlight. bit and get sunlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've you've already touched on this a little bit, but I I want to talk about this just quickly is her morning routine. So one thing she did was obviously get out and get some mm-hmm. sunlight. What else did she do that was so important to keep her consistent in the morning? Well, the very interesting thing is that she she has this substantial gap between when her characters get up in the morning and when they and when they eat breakfast. Now, between that time, they're kind of eating, like I said, they're going on walks or going shopping. They do quite a bit during that interval of time. And this just this wasn't just a fiction. Austin lived this way too. Most of humanity has always lived this way. It's kind of built into the word itself. When you look at the word breakfast, um, it's break the fast. You are supposed to arrive at breakfast hungrier than than usual we are you know literally breaking a fast and the nighttime fast but the the really cool thing is that when you extend that time in the morning and when you delay eating breakfast it's it kind of puts your body into a mini fast mode most people kind of think they have to go maybe for a couple of days without eating to enter that mode and it is it is a miraculous repair mode for your body to enter and and very important for it to enter on on a frequent basis it's it fasting repairs your cells it's um lowers your cholesterol it lowers your blood sugar but the cool thing is that you don't need to go for long stretches of time without eating your body only needs about 12 hours to enter that fasting repair mode called negative protein balance and the easiest time to do that throughout the day is obviously in the morning because you're you're sleeping through most of it you kind of abide by a two hour two hour break from eating before you go to sleep and then you put two hours after that when you get up you're going to naturally go into that 12 hour period if not exceed it and it's for me it's 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 this is how i eat all the time now i even probably extend that even even greater but i used to roll out of bed and and have a breakfast and you know even if I was pretty much not even hungry it was just it was just a habit that I was that I was in now I absolutely love just arriving at breakfast genuinely hungry and um yeah it just it's just great knowing that when you are experiencing that hunger that your body 
is in the peak of that time where you are experiencing that uh, fasting repair mode. And it, it is so crucial to, to, to try to get into that mode as much as possible. And mornings, like Austin's mornings are the best way, are the best way to do that. Yeah. I'm like you, I used to eat right when I woke up at 6am and then I mean, I know. And the biggest thing is that a few hours later, you'd be hungry again. Then a few hours later, you're hungry again. So even just pushing it back a few hours and like getting in a workout, getting ready and starting your day and then having breakfast a few hours later, it makes such a difference. And it's nice to wake up and have a cup of coffee and enjoy that first. Right, right. Yeah. So any final thoughts or advice on these time tested practices that we can implement into our lives? I would say, and this is how I kind of end the book, is that above food, above exercise, above getting outside into nature, um, above all of that, Austin is even more concerned about your mind, about your stress level, and about your anxiety level. And that's why, you know, you see a lot of characters or books that might be doing all the right things, but they are unhealthy because they're stressed out about doing all the right things. You know, you get some big health nuts in in her novels, like especially Mr. Woodhouse. And ironically, he is incredibly unhealthy. And and Austin identifies this because she really understood in the early 1800s, she understood what stress was. She understood how damaging it is for our bodies. And she understood, and, and that's why in the novels, a lot of people get sick. And so much of the root of sickness, and Jane Austen points this out, is that is is stress related is she calls it nerves oftentimes you're being vexed and you know if if you look at your life or if you look at the people in your life i mean i know i know of a lot of people who seem really try to eat right try you know try to eat all like the superfoods they can but that habit is 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 driving them to a certain stress level and it's 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 stressing them out or trying to like procure all this stuff trying to make sure they exercise in a certain way and austin would be just like give that up don't that that is not that is what you're it's it might be good intentions but what you're trying to pursue in in pursuit of health can't you see like that's like that's undermining your health because stress here is 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 far more of an insidious killer than whatever, you know, whatever good thing you're trying to put into your body. So that's where I always kind of leave it is that if there's anything in your wellness or health routine in your day, that's kind of stressing you out, just stop doing it. Like don't, don't, it, it is not worth it. It's not the stress that you're incurring. And no matter how good you think it is for your body, the stress that you are incurring from trying to, trying to live that up is, is not worth it. So that's how I, I that's kind of how Austin, leaves it. And I guess that's, that's the best way to leave for us. But yeah, no, that's perfect health advice. I appreciate it a million times over. It's so relevant. We should keep it super simple like she did. And even though it can be hard to keep it simple, it's the little things at the end of the day that make the biggest impact that you're able to stay consistent with. So thank you so much for doing this interview. You're such a good writer. It was, I, I love books that are really well written. <laughs> oh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day, Brian. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye, Lauren. Bye. Thank you for listening. Again, that was Lauren's interview with best-selling author Brian Kozlowski, who wrote the book, The Jane Austen Diet, which explores the healthiest characters in classic literature and how their simple and holistic lifestyle habits can inspire how we think about our health today. And if you'd like to learn more about Brian, this book, and his other writings, please check out the links in our show notes. And again, you can find us on social media at Millennial Minimalist.